Welcome back to Calvary Life. Uh, we are here for the members of Calvary Baptist Church, just a way to have conversations about church life, and we're glad you're joining us today. Uh, I'm Charles Uptain. Hey, I'm Paul Thompson. And today we have with us a special guest, someone that we have uh, had back in our, our church um, meetings the last few weeks, and very thankful for her, a missionary that's been on the field. Uh, this is Amy. Amy, say hello. And so we want to just uh, continue some conversations. Amy was able to uh, speak to the church family Sunday night and uh, just had, I think, a lot more to say, and we have a lot more questions for her, so we thought we would uh, give it a run at a a podcast here. So hopefully uh, we can just continue to get to hear her experiences and and her teach us some about missions as we continue to work uh, towards being a church that's uh, living on mission every day. So, Paul, I'll let you start with a a question for Amy. Amy, this might be kind of wide-ranging today because there's just a lot of stuff that I'm curious about and I think that would be helpful for our people to hear. I was pulling up some stats today on the population curve, population growth of Islam worldwide. And I read that by 2040, Muslims will replace Jews as the nation's second largest religious group here in the U.S. after Christians. Population is projected to reach 8.1 million by, by 2050, twice the number today. I was also reading about things like birth rates and, and birth rates among Muslim people are higher than Christian people or Jewish people. Global Muslim population is now over 2 billion, fastest growing people group, religious group in the world. I guess the reason I wanted to mention that is though you served in a in a region and area obviously densely populated with muslims you don't have to go across the world to encounter people of of that faith now i mean they're coming to us we're we're going to encounter them we're going to encounter people at work at at school grocery store you know that sort of thing i guess the reason i wanted to say that it seems to me that our perceptions of muslims at least here in the us are almost entirely antagonistic when you when you got overseas, how did how did your attitude? I don't know how did your attitude shift or change or did it change or what surprised you? What did you encounter as you met people and started having conversations with people and started developing relationships with people there? Um, well, I think I realized how much the media influenced just my own perception, but also um, people who knew where I was going and what I was going to be doing. The fear that they had just on a daily basis and and safety and things like that. And so um, that goes back to how people view Muslims in general. They view them as violent maybe or um, intolerant towards Christians, and that was not my experience at all. Um, There are a lot of Muslims that have strong opinions against Christianity, and that's fine. Um, But overall, their uh, attitude and their demeanor towards me was incredibly respectful and honoring, and um, they looked out for me, even though they they knew what I believed. They strongly disagreed with what I believed, um, but they respected me enough to listen to me and to care for me, um, and they were just overall <laughs> the most kind and hospitable people I've ever met in, in my life. And all the places I've been in the world, I would say that that place is just the top notch on hospitality. This, this may be a little hard to kind of break down in a short order on a podcast, but you mentioned something I thought was really fascinating, and I think it's helpful for us to understand just really the differences, cultural differences. Um, but you mentioned honor and shame culture versus kind of how our culture works, how that relates to conversations and even to, to sharing the gospel. Break that down for us a little bit. Help us understand that, like what that, what that means, what that looks like, and you know, how that affected what you were doing over there. 
Yeah, uh, honor and shame is, it's the culture over there, and it, it is involved in everything that they do, uh, friendships, religion, work, everything, family. And I just want to preface by saying I, I can only speak from my experience on this one place in the world. I can't say that this is the same for all Muslims or all Muslim countries or anything like that. So, um, and I'm not saying I'm an expert. I'm only speaking from experience. Um, but honor and shame over there allows you to do, especially as a foreigner, a lot of things that uh, most local people would not maybe be able to do because since I'm an outsider, it's most important that they make me feel welcome, that I feel safe, that I don't see any of the bad things in the culture. If there are bad things happening, they hide those things. They uh, want to portray themselves as very put together and very kind and good, and that also goes back to Islam and trying to do what is right before their God. Um, Did you get a sense then, like, and you're not talking about believers there, you're talking about just people in general, yes. that they would protect you, that yes. they would look out for you? Yeah, there was a time where um, I had a vehicle that was following me for a really long time, and um, we were out in the middle of nowhere, just my, my friend and I, and um, whenever I stopped, he would stop, and this went on for about 45 minutes. And so eventually I just went to um, this gated neighborhood. Most neighborhoods um, or villages are, ha have guards. And so this was right after I arrived, and so I didn't have much language. I didn't have anything. I just went up to this guy who was a guard, and he was carrying an AK-47. And so I said, as best I could, this car is following me, and I pointed to it, and he didn't really understand. And after a long attempt of trying, uh, he finally got it, and he just said, come over here, and you can stay here as long as you want. And so um, they truly will sacrifice themselves um, for anybody. It's not that uh, it's the person, it's really their character, and that's part of their language even. Um, they have a word that means I will sacrifice myself for you. And they use it probably over a hundred times a day, just in regular conversations, like, hi, how are you? I will sacrifice myself for you. It's a very, very common thing. And truly, they mean it because... Yeah, I was going to ask you that. <laughs> yeah, they, they really will. Um, if you give them the opportunity to, uh, to honor you and then be honored themselves in that way, then they truly will do it. So, so it's like an equation always working. I'm going to give honor, I'm going to receive honor, and I'm not going to do shameful things, so I'm never Kind of. And, and there's a lot of um, cultural things that I even realize that we uh, as Americans have that we don't know it's culture. We think it's just personality, and it's the same over there. And so, um, for example, one of the things that I learned early on is dishonorable is rejecting an invitation. And so if I have plans or something, there's something else going on, um, they use deception a lot. They will just say, oh, this is happening or this is happening. Or um, it's like the rule of three. You have to ask three times and you have to say no three times before they're like, okay, she means it. And so, so the American way of just uh, blowing something off, like, uh, no, I really don't want to do that. No, I'm kind of kind of busy tonight, yeah. or I'm just kind of worn out. That just that doesn't, would be that doesn't very work. disrespectful. So to the shame and disrespect, then, you got access, better access, I guess, to initiate conversations, and people would listen to you because of, yeah. because of the culture they feel some obligation to, yeah. to respect you? Yes. I think um, they wanted to honor me as a foreigner, make me feel welcome, and then... Um, 
whenever I made mistakes too, they were a lot more forgiving because they thought, oh, she's American. She has, she has no idea um, most of the time. But if I am telling them that I'm a Christian, first they're already going to assume that I'm a Christian because I'm, I'm white and so I'm probably from the West. And if I'm from the West, then I'm Christian. And so um, they will just hear me. And if they have a very strong opinion about what I believe Generally, they're still pretty gracious in their response, and they will just confidently tell me that they disagree and they don't believe what I'm saying. But overall, it's always very respectful conversations. Were they surprised to find out you were from the U.S.? Like, did they ask if you're from Europe or...? A lot of people thought that I was either from Russia. Um, mostly it was Russia. Um, a lot of times I got Ukraine and Germany, but rarely did anyone suspect that I was from America because... Most Americans don't go there, so um, that was interesting. What would you say, you know, based on all the conversations you had with so many different people there, what, what's their understanding or perception of what Christian even is, what Christianity even is? I would say from my experience, their, their perception is way, way off and in a very bad way. Um, they view... Christians as people that they see on Hollywood movies, all of the Hollywood movies, um, all the drinking, partying, and sex, and you can do whatever you want because grace covers you. That's what they believe. You, they believe that Christians believe they can do anything that they want, and no matter what, they're going to go to heaven. Wow. Did they, did they know? I mean, any of the people you talked to, did they know any of the basic or the fundamental claims of Christianity, or tenets of Christianity, or they—they um, they know that we believe Jesus is God, okay. and that's the the biggest thing for them. And so, that's usually if I if I ask them, "Do you know anything about Christianity? What do you believe it is?" They'll just say, "I know you believe Jesus is God. We believe he's a prophet." You said something a Sunday night when you were sharing, which several people have mentioned to me. That I think really kind of captivate them, convict them a little bit. You mentioned something, I don't, I don't want to quote exactly, but if I recall correctly, the essence of it was in conversations that you have, whether it's incidental at the grocery store or in a community or whatever, if they don't hear you talk about what's most important to you first, then they would not, am I getting this right? Yeah. They wouldn't assume that yeah. was most important to you? Yep. So um, at first, that's it was kind of uh, an, an uncomfortable adjustment because in America, especially when you're talking about religion, most you people ease would, in. yeah, you very, very slowly ease in and then maybe still get rejected. Um, but over there, um, since religion is the number one thing for them too, they're all trying to be the best Muslim. Um, they're always going to be okay with talking about religion because they're supposed to be sharing it with you and they're supposed to do these things. So um, overall, it's going to be a pretty open conversation. So, so they are encouraged to proselytize yes. or whatever yes. term they would use. Yeah. I, in my experience, I only had um, two or three in my time there ever try to offer it to me. And when Like first, they, like initiating it? No. That, it was in always... In response yeah, to? Exactly. Yeah. So how did that go? Like, I'm, I'm just curious about that. What did they... What was their retort? So you start, like, kind of walk me through it. What did you share with them and then what did they come back at you with? Um, well, I would say the... My one friend, she's my best friend. So like we've had many, many spiritual conversations about things, some really direct and kind of cold and some really um, emotional. So um, with her in the beginning, uh, with my language, it started out 
um, not knowing very much, I would say something like, Jesus is God, Jesus alive, Jesus dead, Jesus alive again, and that's basically all I knew. And she would just respond with, no, you're wrong. And so that's basically all we had. And so after um, several months, almost a year of language, it eventually came to more like not debating, but going back and forth. And so our biggest hiccup was the Quran and the Bible. And so that's what I heard the most from everybody. They would say, well, the Bible is corrupted. The Bible is unreliable. The Quran has never been changed. And, and they would just go with that. And so that would that's what we would talk about the most. And I tried to not get into that too much. If they wanted to go that way, like, uh, with my friend, I would say, okay, let's do this formally. Let's weigh both of them and let's actually do research to see which one is more accurate. Um, but to me, it felt like um, the heart of the issue was always works and faith. And so my friend, who is a very devout, devout Muslim, who wakes up in the middle of the night to pray, she prays diligently five times a day and does all the things that she's supposed to do. Um, one example of that is, so she, on her shame, she's got to take care of her in-laws. She does not get along well with her mother-in-law at all. And so she will prepare a meal for her. She will take it downstairs to her, and she'll come back up, and she'll say, ah, poisonous snake. Like, and all the things that she hates about this woman. And I asked her, why do you do this? And she said, I do it for God. I'm like, well... Mm does this count as a good work if your heart is so dirty in it and you're only doing this to earn points for you to get to heaven? Is it actually a good deed? And so she would, uh, she would agree with me and disagree with me. She was very firm in what the Quran said. Um, so she's got a text that says yes. whatever, X, it says this, then I'm, by doing this, I'm, I'm accumulating mm -hmm. some sort of credits. Would, does anybody have any any sense of certainty then? And they can't no. really have a sense of certainty, right? No. And from what I have heard from a lot of Muslims there is they believe that they're going to go to what they would... It's kind of like purgatory. So they're going to go there for a few years and like the sins that they still have that they didn't pay for, they're going to stay there for a while and then eventually they will go to heaven. And so that's another thing that I... I realized was most of them don't actually know what the Quran says. They are just hearing from other people because, and this is something they pride themselves on, the Quran is so complex. It's so deep and so hard to understand, and that makes it like what they would call holy and uh, yeah. from God. But the thing is, if no one can because understand it. Because it's so unapproachable. It, so, yeah, yeah, right. And so the average person doesn't even try because... They say, I have to have someone explain it to me. There has to be somebody else to teach me what this means. And so lots of traditions come into play, and there's things that they do by tradition that the Quran doesn't say, or they believe things that are not in the Quran. Now, I'm assuming, of course, everybody where you were was of one stream of, of Islam. Do they, they talk about other streams? Do they... Um, there I mean, is, obviously there's, I mean, this is a much deeper subject, but obviously there's international conflict, mm -hmm. even in Islam, but does that sort of thing ever come up, the, the distinctions that they have, or why these are wrong and we're right, or? Um, a little bit, not too much, but um, they do have different sects, kind of like different denominations, um, different type of mosques for different types of Muslims. Um, 
they would for for those who would call themselves like an extreme Muslim, um, one that you might see on the news for doing some kind of terrorist activity, they would say those are not Muslims. Those are not true Muslims. Some would say some people who they're rare that they are they're not Muslim. They don't want any religion. They would say that extreme version of Islam is the true Islam. And others would say that is not Islam at all. So they argue in that way. Were you ever invited to a mosque? I was, yeah. I, come with us? And, I mean, was it just out of friendliness, uh, just out of being gracious and hospitable, or, is it, or was it we really want you to see for yourself kind of thing? We want you to evaluate. I think they just wanted me to see where they go and how they do things. And so when I went there, I had to cover my head. And I um, just went in, and it wasn't anything really like I expected. They have a teaching every Friday morning, and it's majority men. A lot of women, women are able to go, but generally it's only men that go. And so what you would expect, like Sunday morning church service, they don't do things like that. They have Friday morning, but... Like I said, most women are not going, so they're not going to be learning as much. What you mentioned about the the challenge to the Bible being corrupted, various translations, et cetera, et cetera. This was, I guess that's kind of common, maybe if this is the right term, apologetics for Muslims. Like they're, they seem to be kind of trained in that sense. Here's, here's a first line of defense, or here's your first retort against. When we were doing some short-term projects in, in India and having conversations with people in the community... Muslim people in that in that city, that I heard that over and over again that you can't trust the Bible. It's and I and I've, I was going to ask you that. Did you have any sense at all of? Do they have any respect for it? I mean, is there any value in it to them? Yes. I mean, for obviously, sure. we consider it a holy book, and their their idea of a holy book is different than ours. But yeah, they do. Um, a lot of them. I mean, they do. They would say that they love Jesus. They have to love Jesus. They just don't see him the same way that we do. But. Um, they do believe that he is, uh, like the perfect prophet. They don't believe that he sinned. They believe that he was born of a virgin and that he's coming back to judge the world. Although prophet Muhammad is going to be beside him. Um, but they, they do have a high, high respect for, for Jesus. Um, and the Bible, they, they also respect the Bible, although they don't believe, they believe it's corrupted. And especially once you get to the new Testament, um, but they would say that the Old Testament were basically the same. Like they believe all the yeah, same they're stories. They're Abraham, and right? So they they're just going to flip some of the storylines a little bit. Yep, exactly. And so they'll say a lot of times, like, "Oh, we believe the same. We believe the same. We just we just got off on Jesus." How much of your training included um, basics of the Quran and basics of Islamic faith, that sort of thing? Um, Were you given a foundation in that, or not really on your own? Yeah, that was kind of. uh, I took a class in college on evangelizing Muslims, although at the time, I mean, I think I forgot most of it, and I think it really just takes personal experience to actually learn something like that because people are people, and they're all different, and they have different opinions and beliefs, and so. I think the greatest thing for me when learning how to share the gospel with a, a Muslim was learn this person specifically and understand, respect their culture as best as I possibly can, avoid any offense if possible, only let the gospel be the offense, um, but really just seeing them as 
a human that God loves and um, seeing them as a friend. Like, I, if I'm your friend, I want to care for you. I want to know you. And so I think really that's what helped me learn the fastest because there's times I'm going to get questions that I have no answer for and I can't, I'm not going to make something up. And so it's the mutual respect and love that we have for each other that's going to keep the relationship going and keep the conversation going. Uh, I got a question, basically, I guess also about the just the application to us. You know, um, we, we, of course, teach at Calvary about us being everyday missionaries, thinking about our mission field around us, how we influence people, the people that we come in contact with every day. Um, what would you, as coming from the mission field, one that has really been in that uh, two years worth, what would you say to us? How, what are some pointers on us of how to look for folks to talk to? Um, just, you know, how, how do we raise our boldness? I feel, I feel like we need more boldness as believers in this, in this country and in, even in our church. So how would you tell us to evangelize, to, to do those kind of things that you did? Yeah. So I think, um, well, two things. First, for anyone who's ever been on a mission trip before, I think everybody has that same similar feeling when you wake up that morning and you're feeling really spiritual and you're just looking for someone to share the gospel with. Um, I think that kind of intentionality is what everyone should have every day to be an everyday missionary. Um, And then being very prayerful and waking up and when you're doing your quiet time with the Lord, asking him to give you an opportunity today to see someone, to give you spiritual eyes, to see is there someone that's waiting that you have put in my place that I need to share with. And then I think um, if you have that, then... The Lord's going to prompt you. The Lord's going to put someone in your path. And then that's where it requires boldness. And um, if you're prayed up, then I think overall you're going to feel more pull to just to do it. Um, But at the end of the day, whenever you feel um, not bold or you feel scared, I think it's okay to acknowledge those feelings and feel them, but then just do it anyway. Like you just have to do it. And you're not always going to feel comfortable or ready or prepared to have a gospel conversation. And overall, I would say if you feel really ready, you're probably doing it in your own strength and it's not going to go well. So I think actually leaning into your weakness and realizing this is what God has called me to, this is God's mission, and I'm just a mouthpiece, then I think it just takes all the weight off of you to just just speak and let the Lord do the rest. Um, I was going to ask you if you... If you were ever fearful, if you had some circumstances where you, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm, I'm anxious about this, but I'm going to do this anyway. Yes, many, many times. I think probably the most anxious time I ever felt was I was sitting at my friend's house and her family was there, her in-laws, lots of men. And um, in this culture, I would generally never share with a man or have a private conversation with a man. And so we were sitting in her living room, and her uh, brother-in-law just directly asked me, so you think Jesus is God? And, like, the room full of people. And I'm just like, this is going to be interesting. (laughs) Um, So you watch everybody, all the eyes turn towards you. (laughs) Yep, and so... Was he he genuinely interested, or was this just a provocative kind of, I'm going to put you on the spot? I think probably a little bit of both. Um, I and think, you may be the only person he's ever heard actually yeah, I'm sure defend I, this. I'm sure I was the only American or Western to ever come into his house. So, <laughs> yeah. um, he, I mean, since then, he, he asked me so many questions just about living in the West and oh, what America awesome. is like. Um, 
But yeah, at that time when he asked me that, I was uh, was a little nervous because, um, especially with men and women, the way that you communicate is really unique. And so I really wanted to be honorable to him. I wanted to respect him, and I wasn't completely sure how to have this conversation with him without yeah, whatever telling boundaries him, are yeah, are right, are you're wrong. I don't agree, and so um, I just over and over shared, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. And so... Are you able to use a Bible, like mm-hmm. being able to like have it with you and, and open up and show? Yeah, I am. Although I um, I can't read that well in the language. it would I can get them to where they need to go and they can read it. And I also have the app on my phone, so that's really helpful. Um, but if, in that case, with a man, I'm not going to be that close to him yeah. and, and hand him a Bible. But... Um, and then that might start up a conversation of, well, this is corrupted. And so I will just share the Bible says this in this place. And, um, yeah, so that's that's what I did with him, and he was okay with it. Also, whenever you share with somebody, when you kind of shift all – I don't want to say blame, but in a sense, when you shift all the blame to the Bible or to God – then it's not so personal on you, like yeah. you're against this person or you are against what they believe. This You believe the Bible and you believe what God says, and that's what it is. It's not a personal thing against some someone else. This is just something that you hold to. And so I think even for young people clinging to that, like this is what the Bible says, then it's not so much that you're a sinner and you need to stop sinning and doing this because I think a lot of people might view Christian evangelism in that way. Like, you just want me to stop doing these things and whatever else. Yeah. I, I think that's big because even in our context, you know, we still live in a, in a society that does have a, a pretty high value of the Bible. We may, you know, unbelievers may not want to listen to it or they may not know what's in it, but they still have a high value of it, you know, to think it's, um, there's, is a sacred book. And so I think that's a great point that, that that's the place that we should turn to instead of really being about our experiences or, you know, even saying what Jesus did to, for me, those kind of things versus, you know, just given what, what the Bible actually says about Christ and what the Bible says about salvation. I think that's, that's big. Yeah. And I think like you said, um, sharing your personal experience, like if you are a new believer and you don't know the Bible that well, or you don't have stories where you can say, well, the Bible says this. Like, you have your own personal experience that you can still share how Jesus changed your life. And so I think that really speaks volumes to people, too. And they see you were like this, and now you're like this. That's also really powerful. Yeah. Amy, tell us your thoughts on this, having experienced the challenges of just living in a different place, learning the language, engaging people with a very different worldview and, and that sort of thing. I think sometimes we think of evangelism, we think of the challenge being, okay, it's cultural, very different culture, and or it's intellectual, how do we overcome all of their questions, um, or how do we make an emotional appeal that'll really hit the heart, and I think we really diminish, or in our own thinking, we just don't acknowledge the spiritual warfare in all of it. Um, I know that's a big subject, but kind of can you speak to that a little bit, just the challenge, because really, ultimately, that's that is the unseen reality that this is kingdom of darkness colliding with the kingdom of light. What was your, what were your thoughts and kind of perceptions of spiritual warfare while you were there? Um, well, spiritual warfare over there is very alive and active for sure. When it comes to sharing the gospel, um, the enemy is working in that person's life. He's also working against you and this person's background and your background, like all of these things, um, the enemy can use against you. 
And at the same time, the Lord is still working in that person's life, in my life, in my background. And so we can, um, God uses all of it. Um, at the same time, uh, as I said on Sunday, I think it's so important to be able to understand the spiritual realm because um, even when we're talking about younger kids sharing the gospel with their friends or whatever, they get nervous because they're, they're in, the, in the real what they would see as real, like this is you just talking to your friend, maybe your friend will reject you, but when you realize it's so much deeper than that and the spiritual realm is so much um, bigger than that, this person, however old or whatever the culture or situation, this person in front of you is spiritually dead and um, without the Holy Spirit, they cannot hear what you're saying, they cannot see what you're saying or understand anything. And so um, I think for me that would just drive me to just lean on the Holy Spirit and understand, like, yeah, I'm going to do my best to share as, as best as I possibly can, full of love, but then understand, like, this is only the Holy Spirit that can do anything at all. And this person, they just need an obedient messenger to share with them. So you've got to be praying all the time. I mean, you're praying as you're walking in, you're praying <laughs> as you're talking, you're praying for them as you finish the conversation and walk yes. away. Yes, all the time. And it's another thing that I learned was just the power of prayer and the necessity of prayer. Um, truly, prayer is the work. Uh, if you don't have prayer, if you are not uh, preparing by prayer to have a conversation with somebody, you really are doing it in your own strength, and it's it's just a waste. Could you feel the difference sometimes yes. in your own experience? <laughs> yeah, I did. And I remember uh, a few times where I would share, like, I felt like I was prepared. I gave I gave a good answer. And so when it was done, I thought, oh, I did a good job. And their response was not anything like I expected. It was not good. And then I realized, like, I did that entirely on my own. I did that in my own strength, my own knowledge. And it messes up. It's just, it takes away the glory from God, and it just puts everything on yourself, and you become prideful, and it becomes useless. And so, um, yeah, that happened a, a few times probably. And so it, I just realized, like, I might as well not do it if I'm going to do it all by myself. Did you develop a reputation there uh, as that's a Christian person right there? Like they started knowing, talking about, like you were identified? Kind of. In a way, they would know like, oh, well, she's a Christian, so she's not going to do that. Or she's a Christian, she's not going to say that. Um, one example of that is for everything that they do, they swear by God. And that's something that we as Christians don't do. And so, like just they, routine, mundane things. The 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 simplest thing. I, I ate eggs for breakfast. Oh. I swear, and like all of these things, just like just that. constant. Yes, and so, or they would say to me, they'd say they'd ask me something, and they'd say, "Swear, like, do you swear by God?" And I was, I'm I'm not doing that. I don't do that. And so eventually it became like, oh well, she doesn't do that. She doesn't say that. She's not going to go there or things like that because. They, they knew who I was at that point and what I believed and what I was against. Do you think it gave any more weight to your words when they saw that you, you lived out what you believed? I think so. Um, I, I think it makes a big difference to me even having conversations with Muslims, the ones that would give me an answer, but their life, I, it, their life looked nothing like a Muslim. And I, I could ask them questions. They didn't know anything. I would ask them, do they pray? Do they um, they fast during Ramadan? Do they do all of these things? And they would say no. And so I'm like, well, you're not really a real Muslim then. Like, you just call yourself a Muslim, but you don't do anything. You could have a conversation that direct? That um, Only, that was probably twice. That's pretty harsh, pretty strong. Um, but 
overall in my mind, that's how I felt. Like, how can you call yourself a Muslim if you're not praying, if you're not fasting, if you're not doing all of these things that you're supposed to do? And it's the same thing with, with Christians. If I say I'm a Christian and this is what it looks like to be one and I'm not doing any of those things, what makes me a Christian? Or how is anybody going to identify me as a Christian? And so I think when I said these things, this is what we do, this is what we don't do, and then I actually said, yeah, no, I don't do this. Then, And some sometimes some Muslim would, would say, you have made me want to be a better Muslim. I'm like, well, that's that's not what <laughs> not I wanted quite, to do. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I understood. They said, well, you like you follow your your religion and and you know it really well and you you're really serious about it. So I want to be that way with with Islam. And so that was that was like a oh I don't know how this happened, but it's just the way it went. This has been a real big challenge for me, and it's something I've really been trying to communicate to the congregation, maybe to the point of redundancy is that the message that we preach and teach here has to be the same message that we would be willing to preach and teach anywhere. If it's not true in South Asia or Africa or China, then it's not true here either. It has to be the same gospel message. And part of that has been maybe an antidote, I hope, or at least um, a response to how much prosperity gospel kind of teaching is in the U.S., and just really, even if it's not prosperity, soft prosperity, like come to Christ for all these benefits. This Your life's going to be better. You're going to be happy. Your marriage is going to be better. You're going to do better at work, you know, all those kind of things. We tend to sell it on terms of benefits. But I'm thinking you're not going to give a presentation or a talk or even have a one-on-one conversation with someone where you're going to sell them on the benefits there. This is how happy you're going to become, and your job's going to get easier, and your kids are going to listen to you more, and you're going to be more fulfilled and satisfied. You're going to find your purpose, and you're going to reach your destiny and all that kind of stuff. You're, you're giving the gospel. You're giving the, the glorious good news of peace with God through Christ now and forever to someone who, if they receive it, is really going to pay a penalty for that. Yeah. There's going to be a cost. So what I've been communicating to our folks here is Christ is worth it. We have to be, believe Christ is worth it. Now, for us, it's... It's not a costly decision to follow Christ. Um, maybe it's less beneficial in culture than it used to be, but I'm not going to be—I'm not going to be an outcast in my community because I—I I want to be a, an outspoken Christian. Um, can you talk just a little bit about that? Like, if you're in this conversation, you're talking about your close friend there. What what might be her consequences? What might she face to say, "I, I want to be—I want to become a follower of Jesus, and I, I'm going to follow Jesus too"? What? What might happen to her next? What would that look like? Um, well, I think it depends on the person, the circumstance, and the severity. It can it can change. For example, if it's a, a single girl still living with her parents, um, that's pretty severe. I think her, her father would come down pretty hard. He could outcast her, kill her, disown her, He bring She brings shame to the, yes. that family for that. Yes, and the women are the ones that carry the honor of the family, and so... That's why what a woman does is so significant. Um, so it could be that um, if it's a husband and wife, she could be killed. It, it, overall, they could either be outcasted um, just by all of their friends and their family, but their family is the most significant. Um, they are always close, and if there is problems within the family, they're not going to let outsiders know. And so for you to be cast out of your family is incredibly serious and um, we had one believer after uh, after he gave his life to Christ, 
he came from a really strict village and he was beaten multiple times, multiple bones broken. Um, He was isolated from all of the community for six months without being able to leave his house. And so that's on the more extreme side of things where... uh, How did they know? How did he... Did he go public with that? Did people just find out or... What well, happened? it's kind of like everywhere, word spreads around. Um, but for him, eventually he came back and told us, like, this is what has happened. So he would just disappear for some time, and then eventually he would come back. Um, and so it's really, really complicated for us when to get involved, when to not get involved, when something serious like that is happening. But overall, um, we are not allowed to get involved because uh, legally – they are able to do that to their family member. They are legally able to kill them because they have brought dishonor on their family. And so if the police are not going to carry this out, then the family is able to do that. Um, it just makes me kind of recoil at how I, how I see the gospel being shared here in churches and things. I, I saw something again the other day that I didn't think I would see again since Rick Warren did it years ago, but the whole idea of give Jesus a try, you know, give Jesus a try. You're not going to be disappointed. Like this is a new workout plan or a, a new, you know, a new soda you're going to try. You know, that's just, that's just yeah. would be totally foreign to context like where you were. I mean, right. you have to be communicating Jesus as the end all be all of everything. Right. You know, this is, this is the one and only true means to God. Um, God is creator, judge, the only means of salvation, Jesus, and whatever earthly cost this might require of you, he's worth it. And I think whenever I shared with them, um, we never, I would say we probably never talked about the benefits of being a Christian, although I, I would talk about peace and security, security being a big one. Um, but overall, our focus was on what is true. Like, that's what matters, because if this is true and this is not true, then why are you doing this? Because they do believe in judgment of some sort. Yes. They believe in any, they're going to stand before yes. God and, as they understand them in judgment. Yes, and um, they believe... And a, and a scale of good works and bad works, um, but they they know that day is coming, and they don't. They're not looking for pleasure in material things here either. They know that there is more than that. They they're looking towards heaven, and so um, I think in a lot of ways that's why they can be more sacrificial or are better at being more sacrificial or kind or giving and generous because they probably have better spiritualized than most Christians thinking towards eternity, although their thinking is, am I going to make it into heaven or not? And so it's with lots of fear, but they still have longer <laughs> or, I guess, wider spiritualized than we do. Yep. Well, um, Amy, we're, we're about at our normal time, but we don't think we're through yet. So we're going to do a two-parter. So uh, we're going to uh, end today's podcast and uh, kind of leave them with a cliffhanger, and uh, we'll come back. Uh, next time and 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 have some more conversation with you thank you for being here today and and, uh, and speaking to us so uh, we are once again we're for god for dothan in the world and we'll see you next time mm-hmm.